Okay, we're live. Hold on. Let's lead it on Facebook training podcast. No, I'm live. Okay. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Caitlin Rother. In 2021, in April of 2021, she published an excellent book, which I just finished this morning. The title of the book is Death on Ocean Boulevard, Inside the Coronado Mansion Case. There it is. She's holding it up there. Excellent. Uh, it was something. It was an event that I had heard about um, in the news. I hadn't really followed it. It happened in 2011. And so I was delighted. I came across the book title. I said, is this about that case that I heard about in the news? And sure enough, it was. And uh, a terrific read. Incredible case, really. But uh, Caitlin Rother has written or co-authored 14 books. She's a New York Times bestselling author. Her previous titles are Dead Reckoning, Hunting Charles Manson, Secrets, Lies, and Shoelaces, Love Gone Wrong, Then No One Can Have Her, there it is right there on screen if you're watching on YouTube, <laughs> Naked Addiction, I'll Take Care of You, Lost Girls, Poison Love, Body Parts, Twisted Triangle, Deadly Devotion, and My Life Deleted. She is a Pulitzer Prize nominee and has worked as an investigative reporter at Daily Newspapers for 19 years before deciding to write books full-time. Her works have been published in Cosmopolitan, the Los Angeles Times, the San Diego Union Tribune, the Chicago Tribune, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and the Daily Beast. As a TV crime commentator, her more than 200 media appearances include 2020, People Magazine Investigates, Crime Watch Daily, Australia's World News, Nancy Grace, Snapped, and numerous shows on Netflix, Investigation Discovery, HLN, Reels, Oxygen, E, A&E, C-SPAN, and numerous PBS affiliates. She has also worked as a writing research coach and consultant and plays keyboards and sings in an acoustic band. And her website is her full name, Caitlin Rother. So it's C-A-I-T-L-I-N-R-O-T-H-E-R.com. And I'll put that in the show notes. But again, the book we're going to talk about today is Death on Ocean Boulevard, Inside the Coronado Mansion Case. So Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. For some people who may not heard your name, you've published tons of books. Can you kind of talk about your background? I mean, there's a little bit maybe more in this background and what led you to write Death on Ocean Boulevard? Well, you did a great introduction. So people know how many books I've written and they're pretty much mostly about murders. Um, so this was a different kind of a book for me. Um, I was a political reporter. I covered government and politics when I worked for the newspaper and I did do the occasional Saturday shift where I would ask to do the cop beat. And because what would happen is if there was a murder that happened on a Saturday, I would go to the scene and be there right when the police got there. And I would get in there right away and interview people. And I found that to be important work and interesting work. Um, but I was not a police reporter per se. I got into um, crime writing because I had been trying to write a novel forever and ever. My um, go-to authors were Michael Connolly, who has been a great uh, mentor to me by you know studying and reading all of his books. And he gave me a blurb actually for my novel, um, which was awesome of him to do. And it's called Naked Addiction. So I had been working on that book for many, many years on Sundays while I was being a reporter. And I I just really was kind of enthralled by true crime stories also. I used to read, when I worked in Massachusetts, that's where I started out being a reporter, I used to read New York Magazine because in those days they used to have these very long magazine length 
uh, obviously it's a magazine, <laughs> uh, true crime stories about murder cases and the, you know, the beautiful people. So it was sort of like a Vanity Fair type story. And I also used to read Vanity Fair. So I got really into this genre because I enjoyed reading it myself in my own time. And as it, as my career progressed, I'm writing fiction on the weekends at home and not able to get it published. It's very hard to get your first book published, especially when it's a novel and you haven't been published before, except in the newspaper. Um, and I'm reading these other books. And then a case comes along, the Kristen Rossum case, which was uh, my very first book, as it turned out, to get published. It was about um, a toxicologist for the county medical examiner's office here in San Diego. And she was a meth addict. She was having an affair with her married Australian hunky boss. And the next thing you know, her husband is found dead in their apartment um, with rose petals scattered over him on the floor. And she's on the phone with 911 and she's doing CPR supposedly, except when they the paramedics walk into the apartment, she's in the other room from her where her husband is with the cordless phone. So anyway, um, that was my, I started um, covering that trial and got really into this genre and got permission to take six months off from my job, my full-time newspaper job. Um, and I loved it. So I basically, my first book to get published was Poisoned Love. And that was 14 books ago. It's actually to date my best-selling book by far um, because people love a pretty murderer. That's how we are in our society, crazy as it is. She was really smart. She had, um, both of her parents had PhDs, so she came from a good family. Anyway, long story short, I wanted to keep writing books. So as time went on, um, I also had some personal experience that became important. And that's what this book is about. This was my wedding picture. <laughs> I married a man who I did not know was um, a chronic alcoholic and he was diagnosed while we were in marriage counseling, being a borderline personality. But the therapist didn't tell him. She only told me privately and said, you can't tell him, which is completely, I think, unethical. But um, I had a roller coaster marriage with this man who loved me more than anyone probably ever has and probably ever will, but he was very sick and it was a very difficult, um, it was a very difficult relationship and, and I just had to end it. And a few days later, he hung himself That's in Mexico. So Sorry. it took me 19 years to get all that down in this memoir. And you can see it's not a thick memoir, but I was only able to finish it by sitting through the Rebecca Zahau trial. And that is why I got so drawn to this case is because the whole point of my book is a debate. Did she commit suicide? And I've been schooled. I'm not supposed to say commit suicide. I'm supposed to say died by hanging. However, that's the debate. <laughs> did she kill herself or did somebody else kill her? Her family believes that she was murdered and they believe that she was murdered by her boyfriend's brother, Adam Shacknai. Um, there was a civil jury. They filed a lawsuit um, against him. And now Before you go that far, can oh, you tell okay. the audience, tell the audience the background, sure. the dates and the times and what happened and what happened before, two days before she was found dead. And can you talk about the kind of place and time? In, okay. Um, I just want, okay, let me just finish the, I'll okay. try not to go into the trial, but okay. I, the, the family believes she was murdered. The sheriff's department 
ruled it a suicide. That's what the most important thing is. And the trial came years later. But okay, so the case was um, started, uh, as you said, two days before she was found dead. And I also should say she was found dead. Um, by the time the the authorities got there, she was not hanging. She was on the ground, naked, bound and gagged. But Adam Shacknai called 911 and said, I got a girl in the guest house. I'm sorry, got a girl hung herself in the guest house. When in fact, he was the one in the guest house. She was hanging from an exterior um, balcony in the in the rear courtyard. So yes, yeah, so two days before that, Rebecca was taking care of her boyfriend's six-year-old son. Her boyfriend's Jonah Shacknai, and his son was Max Shacknai. So he was at the gym, and Rebecca was in the house. And this is the Spreckles Mansion. This is a historic landmark in Coronado, California, where this incident occurred. And it's you know three, four stories. It's pretty big. It's built in built in. Caitlin, sorry to bother you, but can you just hold your mic away from your hair because they're getting just a tiny little reverb. All you have to do is just hold it up. I'm going to take these earrings off because I think okay. they're banging into the. Cord. I think it's actually coming against your hair <laughs> a little bit. So if you just kind of hold it out towards your mouth. Try that. And let's see. Yeah, perfect. That's better. Okay. Much better. Perfect. <laughs> and the Coronado. It's a really a beautiful location. It's by the Coronado Hotel. If people don't know that in San Diego. And it's really kind of like right on the beach, right on the boulevard in front of the beach. So it's it's, really it's facing the ocean. It's beautiful. And it's, yes, right down the street from the famous Hotel Del Coronado Hotel. So it was built in 1908 by John D. Spreckles of the Sugar Fortune and Jonah, who was a multimillionaire, and he owned a pharmaceutical company in Arizona. It gets very hot in Arizona during the summer. So he would spend summers at this mansion, and this is even prior to his relationship with Rebecca Zahau, he bought it while he was married to Max's mother, Dina. So Max was, you know, 50-50 custody. So this was the time that Max was staying with Rebecca and Jonah. Rebecca and, and Max were very close. Um, anyway, they'd had breakfast. Her little sister had come to visit, um, and I changed her name in the book because she was a minor. Um, but anyway, the, the, the 13 year old sister, um, came, um, was having breakfast. She went upstairs to take a shower. Max was upstairs, supposedly cleaning his room. Rebecca was in the bathroom downstairs when she heard a crash, the dog was barking. She came out, she found Max on the floor of the foyer. And this is a big foyer with a couple of stories open with a glass chandelier that was hanging above. The glass chandelier was next to him. Pieces of glass shattered everywhere from the chandelier. There was a soccer ball and a razor scooter. And this dog was barking, barking. So she called, uh, she said, call 911. So her sister called 911, they came. Um, and what Rebecca said was that she started giving CPR to Max. But when the paramedics came and the police came, nobody saw her actually doing that. So it's unclear. But she told Jonah that she had been giving him CPR. So they thought he had a good chance to survive. He was shipped off by ambulance and ended up in the ICU. And um, everyone kept asking Rebecca, what happened? She said, I don't know. I was I was in the bathroom. I just I didn't see it. But she thought he had maybe fallen from the balcony of the upstairs 
landing. So there's like a, a railing and then it comes down along some stairs. So there's railing that goes, so they don't, you know, could have been either way. So anyway, long story short, um, two days later, she, um, well, let me back up a minute. Um, Adam came out because Adam wanted to support his brother, um, you know, while this little, his nephew was in the ICU and Adam flew out from Memphis, Tennessee. And his uh, longtime girlfriend, Mary, was a nurse practitioner. And she says, you know, you need to go support your family. And so um, he flew out. And at the same time, Rebecca's little sister also, she, he flew in and, and the little sister flew out. So the, she picked him up and dropped off her sister in the same trip. Um, she took him to the hospital, picked up Jonah. They all went to dinner. She took Jonah back to the hospital, gave him a long hug. She was very upset, um, just held him for a long time. And then the, she took Adam back to the mansion. She wanted to go inside alone. She didn't want to talk. And Adam said goodnight, according to him, uh, you know, in the courtyard, and they went their separate ways. He uh, calls his girlfriend, basically goes to bed. There's no TV in there. Goes to bed, takes an Ambien, wakes up, fitful, you know, feeling nervous, whatever, pleasures himself. And he tells this to the police. So he pleasures himself with some porno on his cell phone, takes a shower, comes out, comes into the courtyard and says he sees Rebecca hanging naked, bound and gagged. So that means her hands are tied behind her back. Her ankles are tied together and she's got a blue thing wrapped around her mouth. Turns out to be a t-shirt. So, right, so it's in the courtyard. So he's in the guest room, but it's like almost like she's outside, but kind she of- She is in, outside. She's yeah. hanging literally in the backyard from an exterior balcony. It's a rail, it's like a black iron railing that is, you know, and it's got a dusty floor. So. Right. So she's, um, yeah. so all the family kind of came back there too, because the Max was six, right? So he was still in the hospital. He was and still the, in the hospital. And uh, Joni had already had two wives, right? So this yes. Rebecca was the girlfriend. Right. The He'd been wife. divorced twice. There were also some teenage kids, but they weren't there at the time. They had flown out to go see their mother who lived elsewhere. So Adam was the only one, the only known person besides Rebecca on the property. Now, what makes this a little more, what became more complicated was Nina's uh, fraternal twin sister, Nina, so it's Dina and Nina, she flew in also to support her sister. Um, and she and Nina were staying at a house about five minutes walk down the street in another house that Jonah owned. And so that's where they were staying. She flew in, Rebecca picked her up at the, uh, at the airport and she gave her a big hug too, a big long hug and said, I'm so glad you're here. Um, took her to the hospital. But now Rebecca wasn't allowed to see Max because Jonah didn't want there to be a scene because Rebecca did not get along with Dina. Dina did not like Rebecca, did not want her around Max really. Um, and so when this happened with him falling, Dina of course was very upset because she had had problems with Rebecca before. So Jonah said, you know, you can't come 
into the hospital room. I don't want a scene. So Rebecca was not allowed to see this little boy who she was so close to. And this had happened, this fall had happened while she was there with him and she was the only adult in the house. So-called so, fall. There's problems with the whole fall they find out later too. Right? Well, he fell somehow or other. Um, Dina, to this day, she did not want to cooperate with this book, but she said this publicly on, on TV. She believes that Max was murdered. She initially blamed Rebecca. So not that she did it maliciously, but that it, you know it wasn't um, at his own hand, essentially. Now, the, some form of foul play, yeah. Well, possibly that she didn't know if she, you know if it was an accident. Was she playing? Did she you know? Because the night before, as it turns out, the night before, um, Max had been showing off to Rebecca's sister. But the scooter that he was riding upstairs on this carpet wouldn't go very fast. And, you know, there was some there were some questions later with some experts that Dina hired who said his center of gravity, even if he were standing on the scooter, was in the wrong place. To, and he couldn't have gotten enough momentum to get going to fly over that railing. But that's on the top. So the sheriff's department believes that he went over the side railing going down the stairs, grabbed onto the chandelier. Chandelier is really old. And it broke and he swung and fell. So that's the sheriff's theory. Um, uh, Dina's experts believed there was something else going on because he had this pattern on his back that looked as if he had been bruised by the, you know, these part of these railings are this carved wood banisters that are old antique things. They kind of looked like that in his back. So, you know, that that it was ruled an accident by the sheriff's department and Rebecca's hanging was ruled self-inflicted that she hung herself. And what people don't understand, people can't get their he heads around. Most people that I've talked to, even after reading my book, they believe she was murdered because they can't believe that a woman would kill herself that way. And they can't understand how she could have killed herself that way logistically because her hands are hot behind her back. She's got this thing in her mouth. How is she going to do that? You know, the so there's a lot of, I, I go into all of those different discussions, debates, theories in my book. I don't take a position because I don't feel that we still have enough questions answered. I feel that there's still a lot of information that we don't know that we need to have answered in order to really definitively be able to say whether she died by her own hand. Because... You know, in my investigation, I found that Rebecca Zahau is, was a troubled person. And the sheriff's department said that. But I mean, I went into a great deal of detail um, by interviewing her former boyfriend um, and Jonah eight times as well. Um, right at the end of when I thought I had finished the book, I, I finally got a hold of Jonah and I ended up having to rewrite a lot of it. So. I put a lot of work into it. There's a lot in there. There's going to be a lot of new information for people that's not been in, on TV, not been in the trial. Not I have the entire investigative file. So Right, and you were at the trial. But, I mean, can you talk a little bit about – she had a very interesting background. Can you talk about her, what led her all the way up to meeting um, Jonah? And sure. That uh, she was born in what was then called Burma. It's now Myanmar, as you know, is a very – you know, war-torn place. There's a lot of political strife. Uh, they were political refugees, she and her family. So she's one of um, 
let's see, one, two, I think four sisters, I've lost count now. There's a number of brothers, a number of sisters, a big family, um, but her father was a political figure and he ended up having to go to prison initially because there was a regime change and he was with the old regime. So mom had to raise these kids. So Rebecca has an older sister and then two younger sisters. She's also got a couple brothers, excuse me. And um, they had to move from place to place. They ended up in Germany and um, and they were also very religious. So they're part of the Calvary Church. And there was a church um, in California. There's actually one in Arizona where she lived. But um, she went to Bible college um, overseas. And that's where she met her husband, uh, Neil. And so that was a very troublesome off and on relationship. And she, during the course of her marriage, they separated a bunch of times, but she met this guy. Um, and, um, you know, I'm having a problem. I should have done this before. I have, like Mike <laughs> I'm working on three other thing. books right oh, now okay. and I can't remember everybody's name. But anyway, okay. she had a boyfriend. <laughs> right. She had, she had a married husband and then a boyfriend. She had a boyfriend. And then went back to her married husband and she, then well, met the, Jonah. The point, of, like the point of this that's being, that's interesting, that's important is that while she was married, she was separated, but she wasn't separated. <laughs> she was still living with him, but she met this guy and she tells him, look, I'm going through a divorce. Nobody had filed any papers, so that wasn't true. She said, I have moved out. We said, I still don't know if that's true, but she ended up moving in with this guy and then she disappeared, didn't go to work, uh, called, started saying, they've kidnapped me, they've got me, they've got me. He says, where are you? Oh, I'm in a bathroom. They've got something over my eyes and they're driving me around in the back of a car. Anyway, he reports it to the Glendale police. So there's this whole weird thing about, she tells the police, oh, well, I just, hadn't broken up with him yet and he doesn't know. So he reported me missing, but I'm really not missing. I'm fine. And then she ends up going back to her husband. He didn't even know um, until, you know, the trial when he was deposed, what had happened truly. She never told him the truth. And then she meets Jonah. Um, Jonah has just gotten divorced and Neil is still in her life. And she's still complaining to Jonah about Neil being verbally abusive you know, pushing her, doing stuff. So she tells her family that she's left Neil because he's physically abused her, which he has denied. But either way, she's got a lot of stories that she tells different stories to different people about things that have happened. And so I go into that in the book. And some people have said, well, why is any of that important? I said, well, it shows her state of mind. You know, she also was arrested for shoplifting. And that's part of why Dina was upset when she found out that this woman who was taking care of her son had been arrested for shoplifting and had never told Jonah. And then what Rebecca tells Jonah happened is not what is in the police report. Right. So there's a lot of, um, she tells a lot of stories. Yeah, so a lot she's of a troubled person. Yeah. She was a troubled person. And what I found during my investigation my husband, as I said, was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. He too was arrested for shoplifting in Arizona in a very weird coincidence. They went through the same diversion program. Wow. Um, so it gets, you know, wiped from your record. So it was hard right. to find, but 
I started seeing some parallels in their behavior and I'm not diagnosing her. She's never, she was never diagnosed as depressed or mentally ill in any way, but I'm just saying based on my investigation and my interviews, I did see some parallels in their behavior because he told what, me a lot of stories that turned out not to be true as well. And it was well, how, very, how would a, how, sorry to interrupt, but how would a psychologist describe borderline personality disorder? Like what would be the behavior? Well, let's, or, let's put it this way. Um, my husband was very smart. He was the chief uh, investment officer for the um, San Diego County Retirement Fund. <laughs> so he was very um, accomplished, but in his private life, you know, nobody knew and including me, <laughs> I would have married him if I knew this probably, but um, he was an alcoholic and he was drinking. We weren't living together. I didn't know. So um, it's basically an acting out. So lying, uh, stealing, sexual acting out. Um, a lot of times it's addiction. So we don't know of any kind of addiction that Rebecca had, but my husband was an alcoholic. It's And they also um, can't separate themselves. Th this is something that I don't know that I saw in Rebecca, but my therapist that I saw about this described it as your regular people are, are this way. Borderline personality people see they can't separate themselves from their partner and they hmm. have a hard time coming apart. This is the only time you're supposed to be overlapping is when you're having intimate relations. <laughs> Otherwise you're supposed to be two separate people. Right. So that's another thing is so just she, but she had a lot of issues growing up. She was poor. She had food issues. Apparently um, Jonah said that she was really had a very strange reaction to wasting food. She was very health conscious but she worked out constantly, but her, her family saw her one way. Um, but what she was like when she wasn't with them was different. And I, and that's how, what I went into in the, in the book. So how long was she with Jonah before this event happened? It wasn't very years. long. Two it's years. About so. Two years. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. And I mean, what happened after her body was found? Because Adam said, you know, he was very compliant with the police, right? Yes, he was. Um, he cooperated. He even gave them his shoes. Um, and before he came from Memphis, his wallet was stolen. He had no credit cards. He went to the YMCA to take a steam or something. And when he came out, his wallet was gone. So he had to come out to San Diego without credit cards. And then, you know, he was in interviews and he did a polygraph as well. That's another area of some debate because the sheriff's examiner, um, found he, that his uh, polygraph was inconclusive and he decided that Adam was telling the truth. However, other experts who have looked at this test results believe that he was being deceptive. Mm -hmm. So that's one area. There's many, many areas actually where experts have come in and said that they've got problems with the sheriff's investigation and found issues with methodology and what they should have done and didn't do. And didn't take Adam's phone, never looked at Adam's phone or his, you know, anything like that. So it was very, I mean, just the, the, the visual of that is very suspicious. Like, and it's very unfemale, like there may be outliers, but if you look at it's very unusual, this is, I mean, I couldn't even find anything. Everybody on the case that, that testified said they'd never seen this before personally. And Sheriff Gore who's up for re-election, by the way, and one of his uh, 
I'm sorry, he's not up for re-election. He was up for re-election at the time of the trial, and he said he would um, do a review only after his um, his opponent said that he would reopen the criminal case, which Sheriff Gore didn't want to do. His um, heir apparent, who is the undersheriff, is is running for re-election, and he's her, her handpicked successor, essentially. Um, she apparently worked on this behind the scenes, which I only just found out. Interesting. Um, and the Zahows have filed a lawsuit against the sheriff's department now. They're trying to get investigative materials, anything that they can find that might show that there was some dissent among the investigators or anything that they found that pointed to murder that they did not release and have, have said, oh, no, no, it was only suicide. Um, so that that's pending right now. There's a hearing next month. On the 28th. So it's still going on. Huh? It's still going on. And I oh, would like to see, you know, some of these notes as well. There are there emails, are there texts between investigators? Um, you know, what were what was the review panel, the independent review panel of detectives who looked at this after the jury found Adam Shack and I responsible for Rebecca's death? Um, this Gore said, Oh no, we're standing by suicide, but as as soon as his opponent said, I, I'm gonna reopen the case if I win. He did. He agreed to do this. Have this review panel. What were the instructions to that review panel? Because they really didn't do much. They didn't re-interview anybody. They didn't interview anybody new. They didn't retest any of the DNA items that were found to have insufficient DNA. And using more modern techniques, could they have found profiles, you know, of other people? Because there were some mixed and insufficient um, profiles on some of these items. They didn't find Adam's DNA on any of the rope or any of the knives that were found, including the one that he said he used to cut her down. So there's just so many questions. Right. That so did somebody, why did he wipe down the knife when he was well, done that's or something? What, that's oh. what the Zahau's attorney said, that it looks like a wipe down or somebody wore gloves because why is his DNA not even on the stuff that we know he touched? Right. So there was a so the police said or the state said that suicide, but then the family, there's a house to a T, said she would never do something like this. And yes. Disputed that ruling. So they and the, yeah, and they didn't listen to us. You know, they are claiming racial discrimination that they didn't listen to the family. They didn't really try to get to know who Rebecca really was. Um, I know from the witness interview transcripts and audio tapes that I've got as part of the investigative file that pretty much everybody who talked to the sheriff's department who knew Rebecca said she wouldn't have done this. And within days, though, you could tell they were already leaning toward the murder because they said, well, Jonah was at the hospital. Dina was at the hospital. Nina came over to try to talk to Rebecca, because there's a cell phone record and a text that shows that she did try to reach her. Um, she was at the front door. There was a witness who saw her at the front door, but thought it was Dina and not Nina. Um, but, you know, there are videotapes of Dina at the hospital. Nina said it was her, not Dina. But anyway, the, the lawsuit originally was against Dina and Nina and Adam, but the, the Zahaus dismissed the two women because of the videotape at the hospital. Gotcha. And there was, I mean, what was their theory of the case originally in the civil suit? That there was a conspiracy that the three of them somehow conspired and schemed because they were angry that, you know, blamed her for Max's 
injuries. And he was still alive at this time, by the way. Um, so at the time, they thought he was going to come out of it, right? So everybody thought well, that Dina had a did, positive yes. prognosis. Dina, Dina did. Um, Jonah, not, not as much, but so. So the theory of the case was that they teamed up originally, the civil suit right. was that all three teamed up and the the rope was tied to the bed frame, right? So there was concerns. There was, a, and Cyril Wecht got involved in this case too. I right. mean, he's everywhere. I've interviewed <laughs> Cyril Wecht. If you want to, anybody wants to listen to our interview, I interviewed him back in, when was that? 2019, I think. About He's a spunky guy. Still has, a, he's amazing. He's a really amazing person. He was fun to listen to when he testified because, so here's an interesting little side tidbit. Okay, so you know the, uh, Jesse Smollett yes. in Chicago, the special prosecutor was Dan Webb. That was Adam Shackney's attorney in right. this trial. Yeah, that's amazing. So he had so a very he, high profile attorney and he still lost. So Right. So Webb came out, he just put out a 60 page report on Fox, right? So then he's in San Diego, really a top tier uh, defense oh, yeah. crew, right? Oh, yeah. Against kind of a... You know, Greer was kind of like a journeyman kind of by himself. I think, I don't know how you describe him, but he didn't see that. Was, this was Greer's first um, wrongful death case. So so he was up against some serious yeah, challenges. Yeah, he was all alone. He sat there at his table rustling through papers. And Dan Webb, you know, was a partner at this huge international law firm in Chicago. He's a former, former U.S. attorney. He was Jonah's corporate attorney in some previous matters, I guess. And he also represented Jonah earlier in this case because there were, you know, people on TV who were saying that um, this fam the Shackney family got special treatment because Jonah was so wealthy. And Jonah asked if they, you know, could could you just tell them that, you know, I'm not a suspect because it's affecting my stock prices. And, and so the Zahao family has accused the sheriff of you know colluding essentially with the Shackney family and being you know giving them special treatment and and so there's a lot of people who believe that I had someone come up to me in Home Depot and say you gotta find out who bribed the sheriff right, <laughs> you and know that, and I'm like that's a lot of pressure but the well, sheriff we, says no I didn't get any campaign donations there was no bribes there was no nothing this was purely done on science and the, and the science is that she killed herself because there is nothing linking Adam Shackney forensically to this scene, which right, is Right, but outside the forensic, that is an odd as heck scene. Yes. And I, what uh, Cyril Wecht said a lot of things. She should have had, if she truly jumped off on her own volition, and then this is the same in any hanging, it's like an internal decapitation. That's how you die is your spine. Yes, and that is one of my main problems. There are a couple of experts actually at the trial who said that both in terms of the physics of the whole thing. This is a nine uh, foot, two inch drop. It's called a long drop versus most typical hangings where someone hangs themselves from a door or a light switch or steps off something. You know, it's one or two feet. So those people are not decapitated um, and, and, and this is, so the injuries that Rebecca had were similar to what Jeffrey Epstein had. And, you know, there's a debate in that case as well. Was he murdered or did he kill himself? Because the injuries to the neck were not severe in Rebecca's case. There were some fractured cartilages. Now, why would you have fractured cartilages if you literally went boom, nine feet, right? That's what the big issue is. She also 
had four subdural uh, hemorrhages. And so Cyril Wecht said, well, that looks like she was hit over the head four times first. And, you know, so she was subdued because someone hit her over the head. They tied her up. Um, and the house attorney took it even further and claimed that she was, uh, that the knife, there was, there were a couple knives found on the floor, um, which looked like she used them to cut the rope, supposedly, according to the sheriff. Um, one of them had some red stain on the wooden handle on the, uh, the little um, silver part. I forget, divot. I forget what that's called. Oh, I'm not good with words today. Um, anyway, the the, the Zahaus family believed that she, that Adam Shackney inserted somehow assaulted her, uh, her with the, this knife handle. Right, sexually assaulted her with the knife handle. Yeah, but, which... Mm. Right, but there's also a problem. How did she know to cut the rope that correctly? That's, that's another one. Yes, yeah. that's another one of my questions. How do you know how much length to give yourself so you don't hit the ground? Right. Right. And then, right. And then there's the issue of like the knots. How did she know to tie the knots? Where did she get this stuff? Exactly. Why didn't the bed move? If she exactly. jumped off herself, exactly. it was tied to the bottom of the bed. So exactly. there's all kinds of problems. Yes. Mysteries. You've made, that, you've made the case. Those are all my questions and more. Right. There's many right. more questions than that. So, right, but so. I also have questions on the other side. So like I said, well, I'm not, what are those? I'm, I'm I am not taking a position because I mean I I am sure. I can't say it's a suicide for all the reasons you mentioned and there's others on the other side. So. We're not concluding anything. We're just no. asking questions. We're not, yep. we don't know all the conclusions. Right. So um it is in a remarkable case, but that it's still ongoing. So this trial went on, I think it concluded in 2018, right? The jury right. found uh, right. And here's another thing that's exciting. Um, my book was optioned by Untitled Entertainment. And so they're making a limited TV series with me well, as an executive uh, producer on that. Oh, so I'm exciting. really excited about that. <laughs> and awesome. so we're going to, you know, it's going to be a dramatization and adaptation. It's not going to be a documentary. So okay. I'm not sure what's where they're, they're talking to showrunners now. And so we'll see. That's exciting nice. too. So it's going to continue. Yeah. And, and as this is playing out in the courts, we'll see who's elected sheriff next year. If Dave Myers, who ran against Sheriff Gore last time, is elected, he's vowed to reopen the criminal case because he believes she was murdered. He told me that recently. So It's, a, it's an amazing case. It's, it has all the elements, wealth, murder, kind of intrigue, and just the fact that the young boy passed away, too, at that strange time. Like, two deaths back-to-back, -back, like... Yeah, it's really just something else. You did a great job. It's a job. tragedy yeah, no, no, no tra matter what. Thank it's an American you tragedy, yeah. It, it is. really is a tragedy. It's like a American tragedy. Great book. So where's Thank the best so place? Is there anything? Congratulations on the show. Is there anything Thank you'd you. like to add or anything I missed before, before we wrap this up? No, other than um, my next book, yeah, which is what? about the McStay family murders, which is also the San Diego County Sheriff's Department investigation initially. Um, just quickly, the family was missing from their house in Fallbrook, California, and um, two little boys, three and four, and mom and dad suddenly just left the house. They left eggs out on the counter. There was a couple bowls of popcorn, coffee in the pot, dishes lying around in the kitchen, um, and nobody saw them. Nobody knew what happened to them. They just weren't answering emails, which is really unusual. Joseph, the father, 
um, had a couple contractors that he worked with regularly. They couldn't reach him. Um, and then the sheriff's department concluded that they went to Mexico because there was some grainy video that they found of them, of well, not them, but of some people that could have been them crossing the pedestrian border walkway. And so three and a half later, three and a half years later, the um, they were their bodies were found in the desert. And sadly, this is the horrible part: the little boys they were all killed by this. They had holes in their skulls, in the back of their skulls. So if somebody hit them, who kills a three and four year old boy with a sledgehammer? That's what's got me. I mean, anyway, one of the business um, subcontractors was convicted in this case. So that's my next book. Wow. Well, that sounds very interesting. And where's the best place to get this? Is it Amazon or do you have signed copies from your website? I do have signed copies if people want to contact me. But um, if you by chance live in San Diego, there's a bunch of signed copies at uh, Barnes and Noble. And um, but yeah, if you if you don't live in San Diego and you'd like a signed copy, you can just reach me through my website. But Amazon is fine or any Barnes and Noble or any independent bookstore can order it. I'm sure if they don't have it. But yeah, and please, is there an, please is get there, the book. <laughs> yeah, do get the book. It's really please fascinating and very detailed. Do you also have an audio version of this? I don't know. Yes, show. it's yeah, audio, so. ebook, and trade Excellent. paperback. And the best place to contact you is your website, CaitlinRother.com, correct? Yes. yes. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for your time. Really fantastic interview and That's book. Great. Title of the book, again, is Death on Ocean Boulevard, Inside the Coronado Mansion Case, published 2021. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Stay there. All right. All right. Cool. Bye.